Holly. Hey, Dave. How's it going today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? I think today's going to be a pretty rad episode. What do you think? Well, you say rad. Is that something you said when uh, you were in high school back in 1982? Oh, I definitely said rad and bitchin' back in 1982. And I think we are going to be talking a lot about 1982 today. What do you think? I think we should bring in Mark Altman, a producer of a show called... 1982, the greatest geek year ever, exclamation mark. He's created a program based on 1982. It is a four-part documentary, and uh, we've come to find out that he's focusing mostly on movies because there is just so much in 1982 that he had to pare it down. So it's a lot about the movies of 1982. Yeah, I looked back at our podcast because I thought we've done pop culture events for different years. In 1982, we did not do that. We were still trying to figure it out. And I think we have 1982, the best albums of the year. I remember that was the year I brought out the Nebraska album and 1999 because that was our fave year for music. We were just in the heart of high school at that time. So 1982 means a lot to us. Yeah, but we were also newbies at podcasting when we covered 1982, so... We were newbies in 1982 for everything. And so well, when we covered 1982, <laughs> <But> <laughs> we were much older than that. We were so much older than we're younger than that now, I believe <laughs> is how it goes. Yeah. 1982 was definitely a magical year. And we're going to talk movies with Mark Altman, who's going to give us the ins and outs of everything that was <laughs> geeky about the movies in 1982. We talked for a little bit with Mark. How can we see what he looks like? Can we see what he looks like? Is that possible? Oh. <laughs> You will find outtakes from our talk with Mark Altman on our social media at WDDIM Podcast and on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. So check it out. It's got a lot of good 1982 stuff. Uh, we appreciate the, the year 1982. Uh, we appreciate you for listening. So while you're listening and you're loving what you're hearing, please subscribe. And let's get right into it right now. This is Mark Altman, the producer of 1982, the greatest geek year ever! Exclamation mark on the What Difference Does It Make? Question mark podcast. Hey, guys. Hey. All right. Good to see you. Hi, Mark. Nice to see you. Thank you for doing this. Right. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, you know, if we're going to talk about the Smiths, I'm all in. <laughs> all right. There you go. I, I, you know, I hear you want to talk about the 80s, so uh, that's that's good, too. Yeah. All right, Mark Altman, where, what, what class were you? What class, what, what's your graduating class? Oh, are, are we starting or is oh, this yeah, just we're a question? Oh yeah, we're starting with the hard hitting questions. Name, oh, okay. <laughs> so are we talking high school or college? Well, the most important time is high school. Or doctorate. I don't have one, but okay, we can say that oh, too. Can I call you the doctor? Doctor, oh, sure, the doctor of 80s. Doctor the doctor Mar of the 80s. Dr. Mark. <laughs> okay, so 84. I graduated high school in 84. And ah. you were in what city? I was in a lovely Brooklyn, New York, where it all begins for so many people. <sighs> lovely Brooklyn. Before it was cool. Right, right. Now so it actually is lovely. Yeah. Now it is lovely. When well, I was there, it wasn't as lovely. Holy cow. So you were an actual sweat hog? Is that what's happening? I was a sweat hog, Mr. Kata. <laughs> I would have my hand up going, ooh, ooh, ooh. No, so I was, I, yeah, unfortunately, I was more like horse shack than like Vinny Barbarino. But yes, <laughs> I was, uh, I was, uh, I was one of the original sweat hogs. And you, you know, you would always pass that sign on the Bell Parkway, which says, Welcome to Brooklyn. And it was always like, oh, we welcome back, Cotter. This is cool. It wasn't that cool, but, you know, it felt that way. In fact, we're where I went to high school, I went to Edward Murrow High School and next to it, besides the Q train running next to our classrooms, the elevated train, there was also where they filmed the Cosby show, which was my first brush with Hollywood. A bunch of people from school did internships there and it was like, oh, they're filming the biggest show on TV. Because, you know, look, now, now we talk about Cosby, but at the time it was like really cool. It was like, oh my God, the number one show must see TV, Cosby show. And it was like right outside the door of the high school. It was, it was very cool. Uh, okay, so that was your entrance into this Hollywood this world called show. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but you're a sci-fi guy. Yes and no. I mean, yeah, you know, to to a certain extent. I mean, for a long time I was a journalist, and then I did my first movie, which was a romantic comedy about these two sci-fi fans who meet their idol William Shatner and find out he's more screwed up than they are, called Free Enterprise. 
And, you know, I kind of had that experience making the movie. Got to meet, hang out with William Shatner, find out he's more screwed up than I was in a delightful way. Because Bill is fantastic. And I love Bill. And Eric McCormick, we we kissed Eric McCormick right before he got Will and Grace. And that was my first film. And I did movies for a while until I realized you can't make any money in movies. And I ended up sort of moving to television where I show ran and did a bunch of different TV shows. And during this pandemic of ours, this, this heart, you know, pandemic, I was like, nothing was in production. I couldn't, we weren't shooting. It was just like, I was sitting at home going crazy. And I'd always been obsessed with 1982 the greatest geek here ever. Right. And I thought this is something, this could be my pandemic project, right? I can do this. I, you know, we, we can be in the studio. We can all wear our masks. It's, it, this is a great thing to do. And it just took on a life of its own. It became this, this huge thing. We interviewed over a hundred people, you know, stars, directors, producers, writers, critics, studio executives, people like me who have an interesting insights into these films. It was really the end of um, a long road for me because I had, I guess years ago, pro, I didn't even remember this until somebody reminded me. I'd curated a uh, 1982 film festival at the American Cinematheque um, where we showed a bunch of films. And, and, and because I'd really been trying to make 1982 happen for a long time <laughs> in terms of just convincing people what a banner year it was for movies. And and that was great. And and we would sell out every night. So I knew there was something to it. And I'd written a couple of articles like for the 30th anniversary, like, oh, 1982, greatest geek year ever. So it just seemed like a natural progression in the documentary series we really focus on the movies but it's a remarkable year for music and tv i mean like prince's 1999 came out that year everybody talks about thriller which is great but 1999 came out there i mean rio came out from duran duran i mean nebraska from springsteen and avalon from roxy music and you know the joan jet i love rock and roll and asia's self-titled the original supergroup, mm-hmm. you know came out that year and billy joel nylon Curtain. it was like it was so it was a really great year for music and then for television, it was insane. The St. Elsewhere premiered and Cheers and Family Ties and Remington Steele and TJ Hooker, of course, you know, because got to have Shatner in there and Tales of the Good, the Gold Monkey and Square Pegs. And it's just like and fame, you know, as a TV series. So it was like this amazing year across the board. And I had huge aspirations. We're going to cover it all. We're going to do it all. It was very clear to me when we had hundreds of hours it was like, I got to focus. It got to be movies. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's just going to go on from years. And it's like, it's going to be the 50th anniversary in 1982. And I'm like, I'm hope I'm here for that. So I said, we're just going to focus on movies. And we sort of jettisoned the TV and the books and the all the other stuff. We do touch on video games because it was the year ColecoVision and television came out. So we had to, right? But uh, it, it, we mostly focused on the movies. And even then, it, it's crazy. You know, it's four hours of, of all this. And we could have done more. Because, you know, when it's the year that gave you E.T. and Star Trek II and Blade Runner and all this stuff, it's like you kind of got to focus on that. <laughs> and so if, you know, one from the heart gets lost in the in the shuffle, you know, who's really going to complain? There's always going to be somebody on Twitter who's going to complain. But you know, for the most part, I think we we did a good job of not only covering the 10-ton gorillas, but some of the um, more esoteric stuff as well. As I did my quick math, 84, graduated, you were 18. So you were 16. Does it have anything to do with the fact that you were 16 and, you know, like this was you probably just got your license and you were driving to whatever. What's your what was your movie theater of choice in Brooklyn? Well, I had a couple of movie theaters that all sucked. It was the <laughs> King's Plaza, which had been a, a twin, which they turned into a quadplex. So if you didn't like the movie you were watching, you could always listen to the movie oh, that was in the theater next to you. Just, you know, so that was a terrible theater. And then I had near me that I had the Georgetown twin and they showed like the Paramount and Columbia. Even as a kid, I knew like it was, this is how ridiculous I was. I knew like, oh, the Paramount and Columbia movies would be at the Lowe's and the Warner Brothers movies would be at the King's Plaza. I mean, I was in high school. I was reading Variety. I mean, it was pretty <laughs> sick. I was using my babysitting money to buy weekly Variety at the train station every, every day, you know, every week. So, but, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, it's easy to say it's nostalgia. And with certain films, I think it is. You know, there's certain films which qualitatively maybe aren't as great that maybe it is a little bit nostalgia. I just saw them at the time and they connected to me in a way. But I think what you really see with 82, it's the last gasp of the 70s. And it's before sort of Star Wars, you know, took over. And it was about experiences and less about story and about character. 82, they knew Star Wars was a huge success. Because remember, these were movies that were being developed 
after Star Wars from 70. So like in, in 78, 79, you know, maybe the scripts were being written, maybe they're being shot in 80, 81. They come out in 82. So you really have the 70s sensibility. And they're unleashing like these auteurs on bizarre things. Like Paul Schrader, who did Taxi Driver, is doing a remake of Cat People, right? That's crazy. And then you have you know, somebody like John Carpenter, who, you know, grew up on the thing. And he says, oh, okay, now I'm an adult. I'm going to do the thing, right? It's all these people who grew up on Marvel Comics now who are making Marvel Comics movies. So instead, they grew up on these movies in the 50s. But they're putting their their unique spin on it. I mean, what's crazy is could you imagine now a movie like John Carpenter's The Thing coming out in the middle of summer in which, spoiler alert, it doesn't really have an ending. It does, but it's super dark and fatalistic. I mean, it's basically nihilistic. Twelve men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live. Inside. Where no one can see it. Or hear it. Or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This is not a summer movie. And yet it came out in the middle of June, the same day as Blade Runner. And then what was the big success that weekend? Well, that weekend, it was not a success, but making more money in Blade Runner and the thing was Megaforce, a movie people don't even remember anymore, with flying motorcycles and Barry Boswick, which is basically was financed by a toy company that you could see being made today. But that didn't make, you know, it didn't make any money, although I think it's one of the funniest things in the uh, segments in the whole documentary, because Barry Boswick is so self-deprecating, you know, about the whole thing. And the the movie clips alone are just like, you know, most people haven't seen it. And they're like, what the hell is this thing? I think we're going to sell more Blu-rays for them of that movie. Because everybody's going to say, I got to see this Megaforce. It's just nuts. It's, It's gonzo. Commander Hunter, I presume. Now, call me Hunter. I'm General Vern White, Republic of Sardou. It's a pleasure, sir. Major Ben Buddha, I presume. Call me Sarah. Commander, we have traveled halfway around the world to learn how our forces will interface with yours to help destroy Carrera. I hope your plan reflects greater precision than we have seen so far. Well, if it's a comfortable tour you're looking for, I have connections at Disneyland. My, my, my. You do have quite a way with words. Battles are won or lost on quick decisions, Major. And that's the way it is. So if I saw E.T. tomorrow, if it just came out tomorrow, I would still love it the way, you know, maybe I loved it in 82. I mean, Star Trek II, there's a reason it's still the high point of the Trek films. It's still the zenith. It's the it's the one that everybody looks at. Every time they developed a new Star Trek movie, it was like, how can we have our con? How can we have our Star Trek II? This is 40 years ago. They still haven't come close to nailing that formula again. So I think it's not just nostalgia. I mean, same thing with something like The Road Warrior. Even something like a dopey fantasy, like, oh, you see Arnold Schwarzenegger, you think it's gonna be like, oh, he's playing Conan. It's gonna be like Hercules in New York. It's gonna be, you know, this guy who's in bumping eye and he's playing Conan, right? But there's so much substance to it. Now, admittedly, it's this right-wing Nietzschean nonsense, but it's still great. There's something substantial about it. It's not like, you know, just goofy like it would be today. I mean, you know, it's dark and it's gritty and it, it's it's really cool. I mean, this is the era of Excalibur, which had come out the year before, right. you know, where your fantasy wasn't like Harry Potter. It was like there's stuff going on and there's it's saying something and it's it, it's taking all kinds of risks. I mean, Jim Henson does a movie. You know, it's not the Muppets. It's, it's a bunch of puppets. It's a bunch of Muppets. But he's doing Tolkien. The whole movie with puppets. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Who would do this kind of stuff now? In a place outside time lies a mystical realm of sound and vision. A wondrous civilization. Where good and evil struggle to possess the dark crystal that's why 82 it's it's the audacity of it and it's interesting because scott mance who's one of the other producers and a very well-known film critic who says in the documentary you know he talks about a lot of people say the greatest year of all time for movies is 39 you know but he thinks he says 82 isn't just the greatest geek year ever it's the greatest year for movies i don't agree with that i think 39 is 
definitely better. I, you know, some of these movies, I think 42, and you know, I think there are a couple of better years, you know, so I would argue that point with him. But 82, in terms of the risk-taking and in terms of the diversity of the types of films that were being made, it's hard to touch because, you know, the hits, for the most part, were really great. Like Officer Gentleman is a just it's a really terrific romance. I mean, Rocky Three, I think, is a terrific Rocky movie. And I think someone, I think it was David Goodman who says in the documentary series, he goes, it's like the original superhero movie, because it's like Mr. T is like a supervillain. Because you're not dealing with like the realism of Rocky and Rocky Two anymore. It's a superhero movie. And then it's like he has to team up with his old nemesis, you know, uh, Apollo Creed to fight the supervillain. And he's right. Because if you watch those fight scenes, it's more like a superhero movie than a boxing match. I mean, just hearing the the, the way they the post production sound on that, it's nuts. Oh, I got some more for you to get up. I got a lot of more. I got a lot of more. Come on. There we go again. Clover coming in. Come on. 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 I mean, just in every genre, you see all this envelope pushing. I mean, science fiction, you look at Blade Runner, obviously. People are still talking about it today. It's remarkable. It's influenced more movies. For a movie that was not successful, it has had more impact on the genre than any film I can think of in terms of its impact, maybe other than Alien. And they were both directed by Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott. So yeah. then E.T., you know, is probably the greatest family four-quadrant movie since Wizard of Oz. Star Trek II, we talked about, is the greatest Star Trek movie of all time. Road Warrior, well, now Fury Road gives it a run for its money. And then Tron, which is not a great movie, is, again, so audacious. Disney is not the Disney we know and love now. Disney was in the toilet. Disney was putting out movies like Condor Man. Disney couldn't get arrested. All they had to re was re-release their old animated films. So what do they do? They, they put all the, they bet the house on a movie in which a guy is shrunk down into uh, his computer and is fighting and is Spartacus inside your computer. And nobody had computers at the time. So it's even more I'll use a Yiddish word from Brooklyn, Fakakta. I've got a little challenge for you, Sark. A new recruit. He's a tough case, but I want him treated in the usual manner. Train him for the games, let him hope for a while, and blow him away. You got it. I've been hoping you'd send me somebody with a little bit of guts. What kind of program is he? He's not any kind of program, Sark. He's a user. A user? That's right. He pushed me in the real world. Somebody pushes me, I push back. So I brought him down here. So um, that's crazy. You know, so that's science fiction. And what's even more insane is like Conan the Barbarian costs like 40, 50 million dollars. It's huge. They shoot in Spain. It's big and ambitious. And, you know, and, and then this little movie that they pick up for a million dollars, The Sword and the Sorcerer, comes out from some nobody distributor. It makes more money than Conan. That's what people don't even remember these things. It's like Sword and the Sorcerer. This, I, I will say crappy, but I mean it with love. This crappy little Sword and the Sorcerer with Lee Horsley, who starred in Matt Houston that year, comes out and it makes more money than Conan. Because that's when you could have these little drive-in nothing movies that would make more money than the studio films. Because home video was only in its infancy. A deadly sorcerer is called out of nightmare by a ruthless king driven into evil. And a mystical sword is forged for a mighty warrior who rises out of legend to topple a kingdom. The sword and the sorcerer. You know, and it was the big year for home video. I mean, we, we don't even get into that in the documentary because it was so damn long. 
they start putting out uh, videotapes for thirty nine ninety five for sell through. It's the first time everything was rental until then. So what Star Trek two and Officer Gentleman Paramount puts out for thirty nine. Now you can buy movies and build the library. It was the beginning of you know the whole home video industry. I mean, so a eighty two is like the apex of so many things. All right, we're talking with Mark Altman. He is the enthusiastic producer of the greatest geek year ever, which was nineteen eighty two. We're gonna take a break for some station identification. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Mark Altman, the producer of 1982, the greatest geek year ever. So, I mean, I love the quote, Entertainment Weekly a couple of years ago said, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is, is the citizen cane of teen exploitation. And that's not wrong. Could you imagine a movie now dealing honestly with the issue of abortion? You can't even get an abortion in half the states anymore. This was a movie in Universal that was like, they were talking about these things in a meaningful way. And so, yes, the, you know, there's the famous Phoebe Cates scene with Judge Reinhold, but there's so much depth and substance. It's Cameron Crowe. I mean, he he lived this thing. And then Amy Heckerling just does an amazing job directing it. But it's funny, but you have something like Fast Times and it gets lumped in with the teen exploitation of the era, which is like Porky's, which is just terrible. I know people still defend it. I'm not one of them. I didn't like it then. I don't like it now, but it was huge Porky's, you know, zapped. Guys who use their telekinetic powers, Scott Baio, it figures, who uses telekinetic powers to to basically uh, take clothes off of women. It's like you have all this crazy teen exploitation, which then became the fodder for for home video. And and comedies are brilliant. So, I mean, you say I'm the sci-fi guy, but I mean, if I was on a desert island and I had a choice between some of the sci-fi and the com- I'd probably take the comedies because you had Tootsie, which is amazing. You have 48 hours, which, you know, marks the emergence of Eddie Murphy is an incredible movie star who's brilliant in it. And the funny thing, and most people don't know that movie almost got shut down because they thought Eddie Murphy wasn't going to work, that the, the dailies were terrible, they, you know? And then I was really glad because one of the joys of doing the TV series was to be able to shine a light on the more, like I said, esoteric. So something like Diner, which people don't talk about anymore. Uh, to me, that's the ultimate geek movie. I mean, it has the football test in it and it has the whole, you know, the whole scene with the record collection where Daniel Stern is furious at Ellen Barkin for the way she's organizing and misorganizing his records. Have you been playing my records? Maybe ain't we have Yeah, so... So didn't I tell you the procedure? Yeah, you told me all about it, Shrevy. They have to be in alphabetical order. And what else? Uh, they have to be filed alphabetically and according to year as well, okay? And what else? What else? I don't know. You don't know? Well, let me give you a hint, okay? I found my James Brown record filed under the J's. 
instead of the B's. I don't know who taught you to alphabetize. But to top it off, he's in the rock and roll section instead of the R&B section. How can you do that? It's too complicated, Shrevi. See, every time I pull out a record, there's this whole procedure I have to go through. I just want to hear the music, that's all. Is it too complicated to just keep my records in the category, okay? Just put the rock and roll in with the rock and roll. Put the R&B in with the R&B. I mean, you're not gonna put Charlie Parker in with the rock and roll, would you? Would you? I don't know. Who is Charlie Parker? Jazz! Jazz! He's, he was the greatest jazz saxophone player that ever made! I mean, to me, that that is that is a geek movie, regardless of the fact that it's not a geek movie. And Barry Levinson was one of those guys that, the, and I could go on and on. I'm not going to go on and on, but that's like, it's well, an amazing year, and that only scratches the surface. This all started with three people, Roger and Scott and me, who are so passionate about the subject. And I think that's why people have responded so well to it, because it started with us who cared so much about it. And fortunately, you know, I've been in TV long enough and took what I know because I'm primarily a scripted guy about telling a story in the narrative and, and, and applied it to a documentary series. So. I think that's hopefully what makes it so compelling to even people who weren't born then or people who don't know these movies. And I think for people who do know and love and people like us who graduated in that era of the 80s, it's going to really press a lot of buttons. You said that if these movies were released today, you would still feel the same way about them as you did then. But do you have kids? Yes, I do. Do you show your kids any movie? Not necessarily my kids are not a good example because my son's no kids favorite are good. movie of all time is um, The Roaring Twenties from Raoul Walsh from 1939. And he loves his favorite actors, Jimmy Cagney and Edward G. Robinson. And he's 14. So daughter's favorite movie of all time is uh, Sunset Boulevard and, and Almost Famous. She's a little older. She's she's 16. So my kids are not necessarily indicative of a good focus group for what kids like these days. Is this them going through probably what you did? You went probably went through your dad's, you know, old uh, albums and whatever to to kind of discover things that, that were well, cool Well, we do movie then. night Saturday night and you I do? show trailers okay. and I just started showing newsreels, which they loved. And <laughs> we'll show um, and then we'll do, you know, not every Saturday, but sometimes my daughter is out or they can't do it. But we try as much as we can to do movies on on saturday night and look I, it's not like i'm i'm uh spoon feeding them just the classics it's like we'll, we'll go from every era it could be something from a year ago you know we did election last week i mean so it's not just like we're gonna do you know movies from the 30s and you know plus la the great thing about la and you asked about theaters in brooklyn the great thing about LA is there are a lot, there's still a lot of great revival houses. So between the Cinematheque and now the Academy Theater and the new Beverly, you can see a lot of classic movies either on film or at least good prints. Because, you know, like that's how I took them to see Sunset Boulevard. Mm -hmm. There's certain movies like The Godfather I wouldn't let them see until we could see it in a theater. That's, you know, a, I think a big reason why they love them. There are other movies I wouldn't let them see in a theater like The Black Hole, which I should have just shown them on blu-ray because who cares but uh for the most part you know a lot of like classic like citizen kane you know i wouldn't let them watch even though i have a gorgeous 4k of it i was like you got to see in a theater because otherwise you know you'll look at your phone and you're not going to get the experience you need to have to enjoy it and thankfully they enjoyed it i'll keep them do they like the star treks you know it's funny they're, they're not big star trek fans my daughter is not a star trek fan at all my son doesn't really he's a huge star wars fan doesn't really like star trek he, he doesn't not like them, but it's certainly nothing that he's drawn to. He actually really likes the original pilot with Jeffrey Hunter. He's not a big fan of the shows, and he likes some of the movies. Like, he likes Star Trek too, but he's not a big Star Trek fan. But that's fine. My whole feeling is you show your kids, you expose them to what you want them to see, but then it's up to them whether they like it or not, right? Yeah. I, I would never expect my kids to like what I like. When it comes to movies, I want them to have the opportunity to watch these movies, but then they should decide on their own whether this is it. But it is a joy to me, you know, when my son falls in love with something like The Roaring Twenties or, right. you know, Smart Money or, you know, these great classics. Uh, I think he knows more about the classic era of Warner Brothers than David Zaslav, probably. And the same thing with my daughter. I mean, yeah, look, my daughter loves stuff like Titanic, too. I mean, you know, it's 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 like I don't want them to be the, the kids who are only into, like, the weird stuff. I mean, you know, no other kid in America is into. So it's, it's totally up to them. I just want them to experience seeing these movies. But, you know, my son is also a big fan of Marvel and Star Wars and 
all that stuff too. And that's, and that's great, but I would never presume to tell them what to like or what not to like. All I can do is, you know, show them the door and, they can decide if they want to walk in or not, you know? Have they discovered um, the Superman movie? Like the early, have you shown them, you know, like early Superman or the, the original Batman? Oh yeah. I mean, like Superman a, 78 is still yeah. one. It's probably his favorite Superman movie. Oh, okay. It's one of his favorite superhero movies. I mean, I think, you know, probably maybe infinity war and Endgame and a couple of the other winter soldier he likes more, but Superman is in his definitely in his top movies. Yeah, for sure. You know, mine too. Yeah. I mean, Superman Superman's great. And that was another one where I said, I want to show you in a theater because otherwise, you know, you may not get the, you know, this, but I said, especially on Krypton, the, you know, the pacing of those movies is very different than the pacing now. And I think it's very hard if you start to show contemporary movies to kids young, then they can't, they have a very hard time watching black and white or movies that are more deliberately paced. But, you know, we were showing our kids like stuff like bringing up baby very young, so they immediately accepted black and white and they accepted the pace of older movies. And I think that was good. In fact, my son, to give him a shout out, is actually a co-producer. It's his first credit on the documentary. And it's not a Nepo baby thing. He It was when we were working, when we were in production, it was during the summer. So he was coming in and doing notes and, and P, basically PAing and doing research for me. And he was super helpful on the documentary. He ended up getting a credit, you know, which is good as opposed to having to pay him. Sure. And I told him, I said, you earn this. You know, I would have never promised to you. I never had any expectation of giving you a credit, but you did so much work. You worked so hard on this and you were such a help. You know, and that's what they teach you, you know, as a showrunner also, it's like, you know, you want people who make your job easier, not people who make your job harder. And Isaac never made my job harder. What was so great was um, he's a big fan of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, the film that oh, nice. Roger Corman made, but never released. So when Roger Corman came to be interviewed for the documentary, he that was when he's like, I have to be there. And I, by then he was back in school. He took the day off from school so he could meet Roger Corman. And he actually had him sign a graphic novel, The Fantastic Four. And Roger laughed. He goes, oh, my God, this one. Because, of course, we were there to talk about his amazing career and his directing career and Edgar Allan Poe. And obviously, you know, the 80s, he put out a lot of movies like, well, Forbidden World in 82, which was also known as Mutant. But my son was just so excited. And it was so wonderful to give him the opportunity, uh, you know, say you don't, you don't meet your heroes. But in this case, every hero that they've met has been great. And it was the same for me. I mean, when I met my hero, Bill Shatner, he was amazing. And he's great in this documentary, too, because, you know, he sort of has the same lines. He trots out about a lot of things. And it was great because we talked about Star Trek 2 and I think did, a, you know, gave us a great interview. But then we talked to him about Airplane 2, which no one talks to him about, which came out at the end of the year. And he was great. He couldn't believe we were talking to him about Airplane 2. Stryker wipes out his entire squadron over Macho Grande. And now those people's lives up there are in his hands. I guess irony can be pretty ironic sometimes. But it's his ship now. He's the top dog. The big man. Numero uno honcho. The head cheese. And I wanted to talk to him about Battle of the Network Stars because he was on Battle of the Network Stars that year. The but um, we, he, he didn't remember much about that. And then we finally get to say there was one other movie you were in this year. And he goes, what? And he goes, Visiting Hours. And he's like, what the hell's that? <laughs> and I'm like, that was a horror movie you shot in Canada. What can you tell us about? So I don't even remember doing it. We didn't get any quotes about uh, visiting hours, but he was great. I mean, he was so he was so game, and it's always great to see Bill. I've been I was very lucky. I had a great experience, you know, making the movie with him. I've been stayed friends with him for ever since, and he's always been very generous with his time and his friendship. And I'm very indebted to him. I was going to go back to Roger Corman, the aha moment, and we we saw the first part, but when he said that Star Wars had figured it out, like took a movie that I had, but with a bigger mm. budget, like, that's right. That's exactly, that's what we have today is just the, these blown up Roger Corman movies, so, which is. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, that's what basically everybody's making Roger Corman movies. And that's why you start to see in the mid eighties, as he alludes to, you know, he no longer is relevant because basically people are making Roger Corman people and the people he would hire, you know, Scorsese, who's got to start with him and Francis Ford Coppola and uh, Jack, Jack Nicholson. Nicholson. Yeah. They're all making these huge movies. And then of course the genre movies are Roger Corman movies with much, much bigger budgets. And uh, you know, even, even the horror movies, but I, I think it was really interesting. You didn't see this episode in the last episode. He talks about 
uh, Slumber Party Massacre. And you, your first instinct is, oh, geez, Slumber Party Massacre. But, you know, Amy Holden Jones directed that. And um, he talks about how at the time he, you know, there are all these men directing movies. He said there must be female directors who aren't getting a chance. And he was sort of one of the pioneering people who said because he had a lot of women in his company. And he's like, let's hire a woman to direct a slasher movie because it'll be interesting to do a movie that's not from the male gaze. Now, I don't think he used the expression male gaze, but he says basically it'd be interesting. And he's right. It's one of the more interesting horror movies. And of course, in that one, the women, as he says, solve their own problems rather than some guy coming in. And the, script, the original script had been like some guy comes and stops the slasher. He basically changed it to like oh now you know the women are going to solve the problem and stop the slasher which is it's terrific because anybody who knows the movies of that era i mean they were all basically made for guys you know in a certain era to see basically a bunch of gore and a bunch of sex and you know like friday 13th and that was your friday 13th 3d you know the beginning of the the short-lived 3d boom of the uh early 80s forgot about that one yeah (laughs) but i I know i was trying to i mean did you consider yourself a geek holly I did not consider myself a geek, but I think I was more of a poser, (laughs) Uh, like a a cool, a cool kid, but probably more of a geek. But that was not my thing. That was not, I didn't see a lot of those movies like the Star Treks until, I mean, I saw Star Wars out of obligation, but Star Trek until I met my husband. And now I've seen them all, the episodes and the movies multiple times. (laughs) Yeah, but even if you weren't like a sci-fi fan at that time, or you're a poser, there were so many great Movies. I mean, one of the things we talk about and what wins best picture that year, it's ridiculous. Gandhi wins. It's not a great movie. It's one of those big bloated epics. It's okay. But something like The Verdict is phenomenal and it doesn't win. Paul Newman doesn't even get the Oscar for best actor for that. And he's amazing at it, Paul Newman. Mm-hmm. And Officer Gentleman is great that year. I mean, Sophie, Sophie's Choice comes out that year. I mean, it's amazing because Meryl Streep is in Sophie's Choice and she's also in Still of the Night. Then you have Jessica Lang, who's in Francis, and she's also in Tootsie that year. I mean, Stallone it does Rocky Three and First Blood, and then Clint Eastwood does Firefox and Honky Tonk Man. So it's not only like these people have like one iconic movie, they have multiple iconic movies. And then you, you're living dangerously. So Mel Gibson is in Road Warrior, and he's in You're Living Dangerously, which is a terrific movie that's been totally overlooked. It's very hard to find these days. And, you know, Linda Hunt is brilliant in it. You know, she's playing a man. She wins an Oscar for playing a man because they couldn't find a male actor, and they cast Linda Hunt. That was another thing. I had so much great stuff on that movie, but it's kind of like how much real estate can you devote to You're Living Dangerously, you know? And, you know, all this great Linda Hunt stuff, and it's just like we didn't end up not using it because documentary is four parts. It's four, you know, four hours, (laughs) and, you know, yet still I could probably probably do another four hours, you know, with the stuff that we unfortunately didn't cover from that year. I mean, there's just so much. I mean, Fitzcarraldo, I mean, Warner Herzog's movie came out there. And I remember every couple of years, there's a foreign film that comes out that gets people really excited about subtitles again, you know, about foreign <laughs> movies. You know, you saw it with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, like 10 years before that, you saw it with like Run, Lola, Run. And I think then in 82, you had one of those movies, which was Diva. And oh, Alma Lee was one of those movies. And Diva was the movie in 82 where like, People who normally didn't go to foreign films would go see it because it was basically, you know, a huge action movie, but from France with French subtitles. And it's great. And that's another movie that people don't really talk about anymore, which is too bad because it's a terrific little film. Yeah. Do you touch on it in, in the do, series? Very briefly. And I would have done more on it, but it just, again, it's one of those things. It's also, you know, because there are a lot of great independent movies like Smithereens came out that year, Gregory's Girl, this thing called Moonlighting, not the bruce willis Sybil shepherd one but it's funny because if you watch we talk a lot about siskel and ebert and their impact because that was the year the tribune threw a bunch of money at them and put them in syndication because they'd been on pbs but now they they were in the big leagues and they became the most influential film critics in the country and if you look at there and i did their best films of 82 i mean what you see are not the films we talk about now moonlighting was one of them gregory's girl the bill forth type movie Personal Best by Bob Town with Meryl Hemingway. I think E.T. was in there for at least one of them. But it's not like Blade Runner, which is like the iconic classic that everyone talks about. It's very interesting to see how a lot of these movies didn't get discovered or considered classics until many, many years later. Yeah, there are a bunch of movies on their list that, I mean, I'd heard of them all, but, you know, not movies that are very much in the zeitgeist now. You mentioned it was Eddie Murphy's debut in 48 Hours, Mm -hmm. but also a movie that I loved that year. Uh, from Robin Williams, The World According to Garp. 
I love the world Which, according to Garp. Yes. And we don't really get into it, but uh, boy, I love that movie. Right. And yeah. that's a great example of a movie from 82 that no one talks about. That's great. Yeah. And it was George Roy Hill who did Butch Cassidy right. and Son of his kid right. in this thing. And Robin Williams is in it. And John Lithgow. Everybody's great in it. John Lithgow is particularly great in it. It's funny. If you said, you know, I'm here, I'm supposed to be talking about how great the documentary is, which it is. But, you know, it's like, what, where do you think you fell down? Where do you think uh, you didn't you do? Like, not doing more on Garp. I wish we had done more on Garp. It we, deserved it. It deserves it to get more people to watch it. Agreed. Garp. Garp. Garp? Yes, Garp. Sounds like a fish. What's TS stand for? Terribly sexy. I used to be terribly shy, but I changed. Make it easy on yourself. Don't be a baby, Duncan. Say da-da. <laughs> I hate to use a corny line like this, but haven't I seen you before? You like football? Oh, yeah, I used to watch it quite a bit. Well, you might have seen me. I was a tight end with the Philadelphia Eagles. We are civilized people, and civilized people obey rules! You have one hell of a way of making converts to civilization. What does the TS stand for? Terribly sad. Used to be terribly sexy, but I, but it changed. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. Agreed. Yeah, I remember seeing that in the theater. I was a huge Robin Williams fan. I knew nothing about Garp at the time. But I read after I saw the movie, I like I read the book. I suddenly became a John Irving fan. You know, like I started mm-hmm. reading his books. So I'm very thankful to Robin Williams. I, I still think that's one of his best best films. Oh, ever. I do too. That and like Dead Poets and, and Good Morning Vietnam like are my favorites. Right. I mean, everybody talks about Miss Doubtfire. I'm like, eh. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I hate that. I wouldn't show that to the kids at all. I was going to mention one more comedian, Steve Barton's Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which mm-hmm. takes on, you know, those those old style movies. I, totally. I still think that was that's kind of a fun, fun movie. In the pre-CG pre you know digital video effects era it's pretty amazing what they did for people who are listening who don't know this is a steve martin comedy where he plays a gumshoe it's shot in black and white and it's a comedy but he he integrates himself into scenes from classic films with legendary stars so suddenly he's in a scene with dublin demony talking to barbara stanwick or he's in out of the past talking to robert mitchum or whatever. and it's amazing the way they did it it's flawless i mean it's carl reiner uh, directing and it's very funny because this is the cra- wild and crazy man era of Steve Martin. But it also is just technically a very impressive movie. They even have a score by Nicholas Rosia, who you know did so many of those classic movie scores. It's 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 really impressive. I, I like it quite a bit too. I rented an apartment in town and immediately started giving Jimmy instructions on how to pump Neff. She took direction like a pig takes to garbage. There's a picture of our Mr. Neff. Do uh, whatever you have to to find out what happened on the MRS. By the way, your father threatened to have me beat up if I continue to see you. Thought I'd drop over there tomorrow with a little peace offering. What can I take him that soften him up a little? He never had a dog when he was a boy. Never had a dog, huh? Mr. Alfeld? Totally housebroken. Get out, thief. She may save hundreds of other lives. You wouldn't stand in the way of that, would you? Why, certainly I would. I'd frame you or kill you if it would protect my daughter. And I brought you a puppy. Something you never had as a boy. Oh, get out. I, I think it's why I'm a film noir fan to this day. When I saw that film back when I was 16, I didn't know any of these films. And then, mm-hmm. But, you know, but now I do now, you know, like years later, like, oh, yeah, it's I like it a that, lot more now than I did. at yeah, the time. right. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Same, same for the same reason, just because you kind of recognize. And it's an know, awesome cast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, oh yeah. my God, you know, because obviously it's all these great people from the 40s, 30s and the 40s. I mean, Bogart and everything. And it's like, it's really audacious. I'm amazed that nobody has really tried to do anything like that because it'd be so much easier to do something like that now all right. than then, well, you know, with um, digital, you well, know, much, much easier. Well, try and try and pay for the, the use of the all yeah. that footage. That's probably. Yeah, probably. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was doing some research really on about TV from 1982. Mm-hmm. I noticed that movies of the week were a huge thing yes. in 1982. Mm-hmm. A very special movie of the week. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, every network had their movie, you know, their, their movie. And I don't mean after school specials. Uh, I mean, you know, movie of the oh, week. Oh, no. With- and in fact, you know, you're going to love this because one of the biggest movies of the week, and it does not hold up was on CBS. It was called Mazes and Monsters, and it was based on a best-selling novel at the time. And this was in the middle of the satanic panic of, of um, around Dungeons and Dragons. 
And we do a whole segment on mazes and monsters. And I think the only thing that is memorable about that is that um, Tom Hanks started it. It's, it's oh. terrible. Oh. I mean, it's just terrible. It, it was attempting to deal with the whole D&D phenomenon. I think it was Rona Jaffe who wrote it. Tom Hanks and his friends get caught up in a deadly game of fantasy. I am the maze controller. Until they take it too far. I propose we play mazes and monsters in a real setting. It won't be a fantasy. Too bad for one of them, because now there's no turning back. This is only a game. I know, I killed somebody. Mazes and Monsters. Saturday at 3 on ZTV, Fox 17. I mean, it was the age of the TV movie because it was the time of three networks and the studios were all making these cheap made for TV movies. It's not that different than now, except they weren't spending much on them. But yeah, TV movies were big. They all had, you know, tonight on the ABC Sunday night movie. And those were often theatricals, but sometimes they'd be original TV movies. And CBS had them and NBC had them and people watched them and they were huge. I mean, the, the funny thing is, given the three networks, on broadcast, more people were watching those TV movies than are watching blockbusters in yeah. a theater now. Something like V, the miniseries, which came out in 83, if as many people paid for that as paid for Independence Day, it probably would have made more, even made more money than Independence Day. Uh, but Police Squad came out that year, too, on TV, which inspired the Naked Gun movies. So, and, you know, so that was short-lived, but it had a big footprint. Oh. And then obviously Cheers was, you know, uh, it, it's you know, huge. And then, Family Ties is a show people don't talk about much, but that was so much in the cultural conversation because, like, Michael J. Fox was a conservative and he was the son of, you know, liberal parents who had been, you know, in the 60s, you know, pretty much hippies. And, I mean, everyone, and this is the Reagan era, everybody was talking about Family Ties. It was a huge show on NBC. Yeah. And, and then you had the Raiders of the Lost Ark ripoffs, Tales of the Gold Monkey and Bring It Back Alive, which are both equally not great, They're, <laughs> or at least compared to Raiders of the Lost Ark. But, you know, that was the era of taking a popular movie and trying to turn it into a TV series. And most of the time that never worked. Yeah. How did you compile your list of panel? Did you have them fill out a, a form to prove their geekiness? What was the criteria? No, it, it's a good question. <laughs> Obviously, we wanted to mix commentators in with people who worked on the movies. So the first thing was we lined up the people who were on the movies, but you get a very different perspective from people who didn't. Like we tried to find people that we knew really loved certain films. So it, it made sense. Like Zach Penn, who wrote Ready Player One and a lot of the big genre movies, had done a great documentary about the E.T. video game. So it made sense to have him talk about, you know, E.T. You know, obviously we have D. Wallace, we have other people who actually were involved in the movie, but, you know, then to have people who were commenting, there are a couple of people I just know are great. Like Scott, who's a producer on it, you know, he's a film critic for KTLA and Movie Mance. You know, he's passionate and has strong opinions about stuff. So it was, no, you know, it was a no-brainer to kind of get him involved. One of the gifts that kept on giving, we had a bunch of film critics like Leonard Maltin, but Sean Edwards was terrific. Um, he had some great insights as well. And there was a, a woman who's a film critic, I think for Rotten Tomatoes now, but she used to be for CNN, a great Drake who also uh, was great. So we wanted a combination of like people who were, you know, film critics and then, you know, super fans, but they had to have credits. Either they were showrunners or they'd written a book or, you know, they had to have some credibility. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, you're a fan. We're going to talk to you. They, they had to have some standing in the industry in order to, you know, make the panel. But they also had something to say. We didn't want somebody who was going to be really snarky and not contribute to the conversation in some kind of, meaningful way but we also didn't want to get so scholarly that it was esoteric and so it was you know it's hard finding that and you know i'd be lying if i said we used everyone we talked to i mean there are a bunch of people that you know were just too dry or didn't say anything interesting or compelling that we didn't use because we talked to a lot of freaking people but you know i think that when the people we did talk to and it's a pretty wide range and diverse group of people that um they really have interesting things to say and I, I think it's good, too, that it's a mix of people who are cultural observers and super fans with the people who worked on the movies. I think it would be it feel like DVD special features if we just talked to people who worked on the movie. And I think it wouldn't have enough heft if we just talked to observers and critics and fans and not talk to the people who worked on the movies. I think, you know, I, this is me reviewing my own thing, but I think it's the perfect combination, you know. 
It's like alchemy. All right. So here's your opportunity to go. Is it streaming? Do we have to watch it at a certain time? What, what, how, well, do, how so, do I watch so, this? Uh, Grace Geek Year Ever 1982, it premieres on the CW, but if you miss it live, you can still watch it on the CW app. It'll be available on the CW app. So however you watch it, watch it. However you, you know, watch it and then just stick with it. It'll be all, all summer long. You can party like it's 1982, <laughs> just like Prince, except that was 1999, yeah. but this is 1982 and you can be just like Prince. <laughs> uh, how many parts is it? It's four parts. Four so, parts. Okay. Uh, part one is the summer of Spielberg. We deal with ET and Poltergeist. Second week is sci-fi where we do, do a deep dive into like Blade Runner and Star Trek two and some other things like Megaforce. And part three is fantasy. We have some amazing stuff in fantasy. We have these outtakes of Orson Welles doing the trailers uh, oh, to for Conan, which yeah. is just amazing. If you're an Orson Welles fan, you're, yeah. you're going to love that. And um, action films, well, there's great stuff on First Blood and Firefox that people have never seen. We wrap it all up with And the Loser Is, which is all about the Oscars that year. And uh, we deal with comedy and horror films. I think it's riveting. How's that? Yeah, I can quote myself in the end. Yeah, there you go. That's there's the full quote. <laughs> the Riveting, produ- says Mark A. Altman, producer. <laughs> right. Two thumbs up. All right. Yeah, two thumbs, thumbs up. up. Yeah, that's what we're giving you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, two thumbs up. That's right. Well, this is great. Thank you so much, Mark. This was, yeah. No, thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, Holly, and thank you, the Smiths. Oh yeah, having, uh, having me on. <laughs> what difference does it make? Do I think our best. peeps are really going to enjoy it. Fantastic. All right, Holly, do you think that 1982 was indeed the greatest geek year ever? He certainly made me feel that way. Although I don't know if I was a geek in that I saw all these sci-fi movies and slasher movies back then. I was more into the, like, 48 Hours was one of my favorite movies. Is still one of my favorite movies. And Fast Times at Ridgemont High, of course. That was more my speed. How about you? Do you think it was the greatest geek year ever? There were definitely some really good films that year. I still think Tootsie is up there. I can watch that one every day. <laughs> I, I, I do. You got a lot of time on your hands. I, I do have a lot of time on my hands. But uh, as he mentioned, Diner was spectacular as well. I, I really love that. I love, they were talkie films where you just sit and talk and talk and nerdy talk. So um, <laughs> dirty, nerdy talk. There was a lot of that. So yeah, 82 was a very good year. I agree. And kind of picking up some new tips on films to see like Megaforce. Who do we want to thank, Holly? We would like to thank Jody Carp from the CW for setting this up for us. We would also like to thank Mark Altman, of course, for his time. And it's a great time to mention that we are also a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family. You can also find us on WDDIMpodcast.com and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. It is only monthly. You get it once a month. You find out what Dave and Holly have been up to. You can catch up on lost episodes. It's a, it's a good deal. It's free. You can find us on social media at WDDIM Podcast and on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. So please do and like, comment, subscribe. Any way you'd like to support us, we welcome it. New episodes every Friday, so we look forward to seeing you the next time we do this. And until then, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.